God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. We're again in the book of Job, and we're going to cover today Job chapter 42. And in Job chapter 42, verse 1, we read, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Once a man has been sufficiently humbled, then all the agitation that previously existed in his soul subsides. Faith in God and submission to God's sovereignty brings calmness to the heart where previously there was contention and confusion. How wonderful it is when erring and rebellious men confess their sin and admit their guilt before God. This is what God demands of sinners, and it is the only way reconciliation with the Lord can be achieved. And in Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity I have not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. The war between God and Job had ceased, and now all that was left was for God to further open Job's spiritual eyes and bless his life. Verse 2 now, Job's confession. I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Job's confession begins with his new understanding of the power, ability, and majesty of God. This is what the Lord had sought to impress upon him, and the Holy Spirit had made its impression. Barnes on this verse. One of the great objects of the address of the Almighty was to convince Job of his majesty, and that object was fully accomplished, end quote. It is not until we are able to see God's greatness that true humility will be evidenced. This is because man is not made humble by merely seeing personal error, but also, and perhaps more importantly, by coming to spiritually realize the beauty and majesty of God. Hence, it is faith in the Lord and not just sinful humiliation that is the genesis of true penitence. Consequently, for men to truly experience a broken and contrite spirit, not only must their sin be seen and confessed as such, but God's glory must be recognized as well. Through then the combination of greater realization of self and sight of God, God will be made known. Job's confession to God revealed his new understanding that no thought can be hidden from the Lord, since part of God's splendor is his supernatural ability to see both the thoughts and hearts of men. What then Job had come to know is that no thought can be hidden from the Lord, as much of what both Elihu and God had said to Job dealt with the internal part of his being. By then prophecy, the secrets of Job's heart were made manifest. 1 Corinthians 14, 25. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. Not only had the Lord heard his words, but this servant of God fully realized that his thoughts were visible to God as well. Ultimately, the Lord knew what Job was thinking and was aggravated by it. No doubt, his contemplations were just deeper accusations against the Lord and extended further even than Job's erring words. Sin lies not simply in what men do, but is equally convictive in what they think. 
It is the inside of the cup that is the most unclean. And the thoughts sinners think are generally far more sinful than even the deeds they do or the words they speak. And in Genesis 6, 5, we read, And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Hence, for men to be forgiven, thoughts of sin must be confessed, as well as acts of it. To think something in the heart is uniform to doing it in the life. Verse 3 now. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not, things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Because of his spiritual ignorance, Job's pride had lifted him up to believe he knew more of the Lord than he really did. And by this he sinned against the one he initially thought himself to speak well of. There is also in Job's penitence a very sincere accountability and answerableness for his sin. Therefore have I uttered that I understood not, things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Job confesses to uttering things he understood not, and things so wonderful that he knew not. The eye is repeated and used with force, simply because Job had come to know that the source of his sin was himself. His friends were not blamed because when men are truly repentant, it is not other sins that are brought to the altar of God, but only their own. The truly compunctious man, therefore, will not include others as the reason for sin. To do so would be an extended form of a denial of it. Adam and Eve attempted this deception, yet it was not successful. Saul also tried blaming others for his rebellious act of disregarding God's command given to him. This should teach us that not until we see ourselves as solely guilty and do not try also and incriminate others in the process can God forgive us. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and cannot transfer guilt to others as grounds for his own innocence. Yes, Job's friends had aggravated him, even as the devil had tempted and assaulted Job. But none of this mattered, nor would God grant forgiveness merely because outside sources had been involved. That which Job did not know about God, and that which he confessed as too wonderful to be known, was that God governs all human affairs, including the Lord's role in Job's own life. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible, too wonderful. I rashly denied that thou hast any fixed plan in governing human affairs, merely because thy plan was too wonderful for my comprehension, end quote. There is hardly a truth more beyond human comprehension than that God is directly involved in every man's life, that there is a personal interest of the Creator in all of His creatures. Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Gil on Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee not merely by his omnipotence, so he knows all men before their conception and birth, 
but with such a knowledge it had special love and affection joined with it, in which sense the Lord knows them that are His, as He does not others, and predestinates them unto eternal life, and which is not only before their formation in the womb, but before the foundation of the world, even from all eternity. The forming of the human fetus is God's act, and a curious piece of workmanship it is. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, not by infusing holiness unto him, but by separating him in his eternal purposes and decrees to the office of a prophet, before he was born, and even before the world began, just as the Apostle Paul was separated to the gospel of God, Romans 1.1. If this was true of Jeremiah and the man Jesus healed who was blind from his birth, then it is safe to assume that Job's life was also foreknown by God, and as such, purposed by God for a reason. Biblical history also teaches us that God allows certain events in men's lives in order that his own purposes are fulfilled. As Joseph was sold into slavery, not simply because of the envy that lived in his brother's hearts, but first and foremost, because this was part of God's plan for his life. Moses also was abandoned as a child for the singular purpose that he would be raised in Pharaoh's court, in order that he might be adequately equipped to lead God's people out of Egypt. Since this is true of so many of the saints of old, it should be considered as equally true for God's saints today that the Lord has a distinct purpose for every saved one's life. To fight against this purpose is to fight against God Himself. Hence, even though the world is corrupted by sin, still the Lord oversees all. Job had come to realize the truth, that though he felt abandoned, in actuality, he was only being guided. Guided by God to see his own sin more clearly, and the God he worshipped more perfectly. The result of this was that Job's faith was increased, and though evil had been done, and Satan was involved, not so much so that God was not still in control. The journey had been long and arduous, but its rewards were greater than Job could have imagined. Since coming to intimately know God, even if there is personal pain involved, is a reward of the highest degree. Verse 4 now. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. These are Job's words. Benson on this verse. The words which God had uttered to Job by way of challenge. Job returns to him in the way of submission. End quote. Once Job's heart has been sufficiently cleansed, he became ready to more deeply converse with the Lord. Where Job had previously maintained fear of offending God through speech, now he knows, since his heart has been cleansed, that he can carry on discourse with the Lord without spiritual trepidation. Having been sufficiently humbled, Job now assumes the role of a teachable student. And this is seen by his words of, Declare thou unto me. Psalm 119.33 Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. 
What this teaches us is that no man can properly walk in either God's word or God's will in life without God's own personal spiritual instruction. God must declare what sin is, as well as what righteousness consists of, in order for men to walk properly in his will. This will always include needed reproof and correction for sin. The Lord also is the only true teacher of his religion. Thus, for men to truly enter into it, they must be personally taught by him. Yet not until man's pride is broken and sufficiently lowered will God's revelation begin. And not until men are willing to sit at the Lord's feet in humble submission to his will will God then bring further revelations about himself. Matthew Henry once said, Spiritual and heavenly blessings are the best blessings with which we cannot be miserable and without which we cannot but be so. Hence, it makes little difference if God blesses a man materially if God's spiritual revelations are withheld from him. For the hearts and souls of saints need so much more than simply earthly abundance. In the end, it is God's word that brings joy to the heart and only sweet fellowship with God that can make a man's life truly full. Verse five now. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Benson on this verse. But now mine eye seeth thee. It is plain, says Dr. Dodd, that there is some privilege intended here that Job had never enjoyed before, and which he calls a sight of God. He had heard of him by the hearing of the ear, or the tradition delivered down from his forefathers. But he had now a clear and sensible perception of his being and divine perfections. Some light thrown in upon his mind, which carried its own evidence with it, and which to him had all the certainty and clearness even of sight itself. End quote. Outside of John 10.10, there is hardly a verse of scripture that has been more formatted in my life than this one. It is the singular scripture that the Lord used to bring me into connection to the great importance of the book of Job. The truth it reveals of seeing God and not merely hearing of God is what I desired more than anything else in my life. I understood as well that not until men are brought to truly know God will this life be worth living. Hence, it is not enough for the starving Christian to hear of the Lord without personally and intimately experience Him for themselves. Sight of God also will reveal to a man that God is the very reason for life itself. When the heart has been illuminated via the spirit of truth, it is as influencing as seeing anything through earthly eyes. What this verse also teaches us is that if a man is to judge himself properly concerning his true knowledge of the Lord, he must use the criteria of not of what he has heard about God, but rather what his own eyes have actually seen of him. Hearsay is so much inferior to actual sight. Just as hearing what others have spoken of the Lord is not even remotely comparable to seeing him for ourselves. Where many will remain content with simply hearing, God's true children 
cannot cease in their search for the Lord until they by grace are brought to see him for themselves. It is sight of Christ also, which will be the ultimate reward of faith for those who have believed upon the Lord Jesus. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What is also true is that the believer's journey will have to undergo the same progression of hearing before seeing as Job experienced in his life. As both organs of perception, the ear and the eye, are part of God's plan to bring men into greater revelations concerning himself. Proverbs 20.12, The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord hath made even both of them. Gill on this verse. The hearing ear and the seeing eye. There may be an ear that hears not, and an eye that seeth not, and which men may make. The painter can paint an ear and an eye, and a carver can carve both, but they are ears that hear not, and eyes that see not. But such as can hear and see are of the Lord's own making. The Lord hath made even both of them. They are the effects of his wisdom, power, and goodness. They are both senses of excellent use and service, great mercies and blessings of life for which man should be abundantly thankful and pray for the continuance of and make use of to the best purposes. They are means of conveying much knowledge to the mind and by which it may be cultivated and improved in it, end quote. We are all Nathaniels in our own right and must have someone like Philip to speak to us of the Lord before we can be brought into a position to see him for ourselves. Philip's words of come and see spoken to Nathaniel are exactly the same words the Holy Spirit will speak to the heart of those called by Christ today. Since first men hear of God, and if what is heard is sincerely believed, then sight of God eventually follows. There is nothing so transforming to the Christian soul than when God and His glory becomes visible. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all, with an open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. In this verse lies one of the keys to all true transformation. As true sight of God is what will ultimately produce personal transformation. This is what had transformed Job's heart, and it shall accomplish the same great reality for us. The eye of a man, therefore, especially his inward spiritual eye, is critical for any true conversion. One of the great works of the Spirit also is to open the eyes of the blind. Consequently, wherever God's Spirit truly is, His people will be brought to sight. Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Now verse 6 of Job 42. Wherefore, these are Job's words again, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Here we see 
that it is no longer self-righteousness, but rather self-incrimination that Job utters. Through then God's influence on his life, Job's evaluation of himself had changed. With accurate spiritual sight came Job's repentance. True repentance also will not merely consist of confession of sin, but will go so much further, ultimately resulting in an abhorrence of self. Hence, if men say that they have repented, but do not despise themselves, then we know that there is still great lack in their acknowledgement of sin. For true repentance will always touch the soul of a man and not merely be a mental thing. Sin, therefore, pangs the sinner, whereas casual confession surely will not. Psalm 31.10 For my life is spent with grief, and my years with sighing. My strength faileth because of mine iniquity, and my bones are consumed. Hence, where there is true understanding of the sins we have committed, there shall come loathing of self. This is not a bad thing, for only when men hate their sin can we know that the Holy Spirit has accomplished its purpose. And in Ezekiel 6, 9, And they that escape of you shall remember me among the nations, whither they shall be carried captives. Because I am broken with their whorish heart, which hath departed from me, and with their eyes, which go a-whoring after idols, and they shall loathe themselves for the evils which they have committed in all their abominations. It is, it is wrong to assume that just because Job abhorred himself, that his heart was not at the same time experiencing great inward spiritual peace. Simply because all true godly sorrow is both refreshing and cleansing. Remembering as well that all truth, whether it is purpose for man's abasement or God's glorification, sets men free. And where living in sin or hiding sin is weighty and oppressive, confessing sin is freedom. Job, therefore, though on his knees, possessed a soul at peace. Sin also can no longer maintain its hold on a man's conscience once confession is made to God and the Lord's forgiveness is granted. Yet, before confession, sin will undoubtedly, as it had with Job, weigh heavily on the soul, teaching us that prior to Job's repentance, it was not only tragedy that he was carrying, but also the weight of unrecognized sin. Psalm 38, 4. For mine iniquities are gone over mine head, as an heavy burden they are too heavy for me. It is also only in the process of being forgiven by God that sinners really come to know God. Jeremiah 31, 34. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Observe that it is by God providing forgiveness for sin that a greater knowledge and intimacy with Him is gained. Since God's true nature is never more clearly seen than when He through love and divine mercy forgives the penitent. The God of love ultimately revealing Himself to men 
through the process of divine forgiveness. Now verse 7. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for you have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Having sufficiently humbled Job, the Lord turns his attention to Job's three friends. God singles out Eliphaz because he was the oldest and had taken the lead role in thinking himself fit to correct Job. He had led the improper correction of God's servant, and God would make sure that he bore the brunt of God's discipline. The Lord was angry, and he wanted to ensure that Eliphaz and Job's other two friends became fully aware of the reason for his anger. It is here also that we observe that God's demeanor has completely changed towards Job. For no longer does the Lord bring reproof to Job, but instead becomes Job's defense before his other friends. By Job's confession of sin, God had become his friend, and as such would defend Job's faith before others, who themselves were much less spiritual than him. What God also says that Job spoke right of him was his acknowledgement of God's majesty. By then acknowledging that God could do anything, including correcting his own flawed religion, God had been justified. It was Job who had sinned in accusing God of injustice and not God who had acted unrighteously towards him. Having confessed his sin, Job in reality had also justified his God. And God decreed this speech of Job as perfect and right. Barnes on this verse. Job uttered indeed some improper sentiments about God and his government. He expressed himself with irreverence and impatience. He used a language of boldness and complaint, wholly improper. But this was done in the agony of mental and bodily suffering. And when provoked by the severe and improper charges of hypocrisy brought by his friends, what, they said, on the contrary, was unprovoked. It was when they were free from suffering and when they were urged to it by no severity of trial. It was moreover when every consideration required them to express the language of condolence and to comfort a suffering friend, end quote. Verse 8 now. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For him will I accept lest I deal with you after your folly, in that you have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. Job's friends had thought themselves superior to God's servant, yet in the end he would be needed for their forgiveness. Their pride had lifted them up, and God wanted to make sure that they were adequately humbled before they could continue in any pursuit of religion. In the end then, Job would assume the role of their priest in order that forgiveness might be given to them. Ultimately also, the one who had patiently endured God's trial and not his three friends would God accept sacrifice from. Verse 9 now. So Elipaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophor the Naamite went and did according as the Lord commanded them. 
the Lord also accepted Job. Elipaz, Bildad, and Zophar did exactly as the Lord had commanded them. Their submission and obedience reveals that though they had sinned against both God and their friend, it was foolishness that prompted their actions and not maliciousness. Because also the Lord provided a mediator for their sin, forgiveness could be given to them. One cannot think of this and at the same time not think of our need for Jesus as our mediator. As through Christ's suffering, he is able to make intercession for the sins of the whole world. What this also teaches us is that after men are tried and come through their trials successfully is when their lives often bless others the most. Since he who has successfully gone through trial has so much more to give others than before it. Through then divine trials, spiritual ministries are increased and men's impact on others intensified. For none shall be better equipped to serve the Lord than he who has by faith successfully overcome spiritual trials. Verse 10 now. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. The penitent heart will progress towards becoming the freed and forgiven heart. As those truly repentant will not only confess their own sin, but also will be willing to show compassion towards other sinners as well. Fully aware that all men have sinned, and none more so than themselves. Hence, it is not a hard thing to either pray for or forgive other sins for their sins against us, when we have before this been forgiven by God. To Job then, his friend's crimes were no greater than his own. What God had allowed Satan to take away from Job, now God restores double. What a wonderful truth this teaches us, that when God permits loss for higher lessons of spirituality to be taught, then His grace will provide even more blessings after. Therefore, not only does God give the grace needed for reproof and forgiveness, but also supplies many other blessings after His Word has accomplished its purpose. Verse 11 now. Then came there unto Him all His brethren and all His sisters, and all they that had been of His acquaintance before, and did eat bread with Him in His house, and they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and every one an earring of gold. God's kindness is such that not only had fellowship with God been restored to Job, but also previous friends and family were brought to further enhance his encouragement. No longer would Job need to sit alone in dust and ashes but rather would be nestled in his own house with loved ones comforting him. No doubt the Lord knows that human companionship is necessary for men to be fully blessed in their life. When then men find peace through reconciliation with God, which can only happen when they discover true humility, then God often ensures peace and sweet fellowship with others. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways Please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to at peace with him. Benson on this verse. 
when a man's ways please the Lord. The best way to have our enemies reconciled unto us is for us first to be reconciled unto God. For such is the love which the Lord hath to pious and virtuous persons, that when all their designs and actions are such as he approves, he often inclines even those that were their foes to become their friends, disposing their hearts to kindness towards them." The book of Revelation also gives us a striking illustration of God's power to bring enemies of the gospel to behold and acknowledge his love for the saved. Revelation 3.9 Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Barnes on this verse. The truth taught here is that it is in the power of the Lord Jesus so to turn the hearts of all the enemies of religion that they shall be brought to show respect to it, so to incline the minds of all people that they shall honor the church or be at least outwardly its friends. Such homage the world shall yet be constrained to pay to it. And to know that I have loved thee. This explains what he had just said and shows that he means that the enemies of his church will yet be constrained to acknowledge that it enjoys the smiles of God. And then instead of being persecuted and reviled, it should be respected and loved, end quote. What we see in the book of Revelation is to a degree true of Job. For when God turned his captivity, all those who had observed the tragedies in his life were able to behold God's love for him. Job's trials revealed that he was never cursed, but that God was with him throughout his trials. By also God freeing Job from his captivity and forgiving him for his sin, it was proved that Job was in fact the Lord's own. Exactly what Job had previously claimed and was ultimately proven right about. Verse 12 now. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 she-asses. Matthew Henry on this verse. The last days of a good man sometimes prove his best. His last works his best works, his last comforts, his best comforts for his path, like that of the morning light, shines more and more unto the perfect day, end quote. In reality, Job's initial losses were only rented losses. As God had always purposed that they were to be removed from Job, but for a season, proving again that all things work together for good to them that love God. Matthew Henry on Romans 8, 28, of which we quoted, Every providence tends to the spiritual good of those that love God. In breaking them off from sin, bringing them nearer to God, weaning them from the world, and fitting them for heaven, end quote. What God had purposed for Job, he had known from the end. And though there needed to be momentary loss, patience would prove that God always intended everlasting gain. This is also why the book of Job cannot be properly discerned 
nor sufficiently understood until the end of the Lord is seen. James 5.11 Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Barnes on this verse, You have heard of the patience of Job as one of the most illustrious instances of patient sufferers. The book of Job was written among other reasons, to show that true religion would bear any form of trial to which it could be subjected and have seen the end of the Lord, that is, the end or design which the Lord had in the trials of Job, or the result to which he brought the case at last, to wit, that he showed himself to be very merciful to the poor sufferer, that he met him with the expressions of his approbation for the manner in which he bore his trials, and that he doubled his former possessions and restored him to more than his former happiness and honor, end quote. Though God's children must undergo trials in this life, God's pity and mercy shall help them overcome. Hence, though spiritual lessons are necessary to be taught, God's pity will remain with the afflicted while under their trial and God's mercy shall in the end await them after it. And just as with Jesus' trial in the wilderness, when it was necessary that he be tempted of the devil for forty days and forty nights, after his trial the Lord sent angels to minister unto him. Ultimately, all trial has an end, and it is after the trial that God's love will be fully evidenced. Verse 13 now. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first Jemima, and the name of the second Kezia, and the name of the third Karenhapuk. And in all the land there were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job. And their fathers gave them inheritance among their brethren. Job's children, especially his daughters, revealed the great blessing his life enjoyed after his trial. His daughters are thus described as fair and beautiful as this reflected the changed condition of Job's own life, where previous his children were not named, since sinners should never be singled out for remembrance. Now even his daughters are purposed for distinction and remembrance. They also received an inheritance from their father, usually only reserved for the males, teaching us the thoroughness of how deeply God blessed his faithful servant and all those who came after him. Verse 16 now. After this lived Job 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons even four generations. Benson on this verse, As God appointed to Adam another seed instead of that which was slain, so he did to Job with advantage. God has ways to repair the losses and balance the griefs of those who were deprived of their property or are written childless as Job was when he buried all his children and was robbed of all his sheep and cattle by the Chaldeans and Sabaeans, end quote. The extension of Job's years on the earth were purposed by God to extend him mercy, proving that though he had suffered loss of time, time also would be generously rewarded to him. Job therefore lived until his life was full and long enough also that what he endured was a distant memory. His time of blessing was no doubt more than double his time of affliction. Hence, property, 
children, and even time was restored to this previously self-righteous, yet also sincere man of God, proving again that the only thing that is able to match God's justice is God's mercy. Verse 17. So Job died being old and full of days. After Job's long and full life, the Lord decided that his time on earth should come to an end. But little did he know that the documentation of his walk with God and the trials he experienced would be recorded for eternity. The book of Job also finds its place in the canon as one of the most important books ever written, a book filled with spiritual meaning far beyond the natural man's perception of life, a book also purposed for those who would follow Job, instructing them in the majesty and sovereignty of God and how it is always wrong to condemn God in order to justify self. No man also can read and contemplate the great lessons in the book of Job and not be eternally changed in the process. As the book teaches one of the singular and most important lessons in the Bible, which is the path to a broken and contrite spirit, a treasure that, if found, will be viewed as something of inestimable value, since all who truly discover spiritual humility at the very same time put themselves in a favorable position to be blessed by God, considering as well that God will favor none who, even if they are religious, are also in their true inner core, self-righteous. And we'll close with James 4, 6. But he, God, giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Amen.